Okay, thank you very much for coming, and um, I'm very glad to be here, and I offer my deepest thanks to the Institute, the German Institute for Japanese Studies, which is hosting me for three weeks, three wonderful weeks here. Thank you. Um, the three, I will get right into what the three myths are, so you can see whether you knew them <laughs> or you knew they were myths. Okay, the first, that the J Japanese Red Army, Nihon Sekigun, carried out international incidents in 1972 through 1977, and some later ones are also attributed to them. And the second myth is that Shigenobu Fusako, the female leader of the group, is the mastermind who planned and instigated all of these events. And the third is all the people on the Japanese Red Army Interpol wanted list committed criminal acts of terrorism as members of the group. Okay, so now let's see what, where these myths came from and what is wrong with them. But first, for those of you who don't happen to be specialists in <laughs> the Red Army and its history, I'll give you a few minutes background on where the Red Army came from, okay? Um, first of all, there was a long period of contentious social movements in what I call the long decade of the 1960s, which spans the period with, of the, the emergence and heyday of the Japanese New Left. So that period is basically from about 1957-58 through the 1960 Ampo protests, the 1970 Ampo protests, and a whole lot of other issues in the second period, and sort of tails off by about 1975. Okay, so this period of mass protests, particularly in the late 1960s, um, there was a great escalation of violence. It was, it was reciprocal. Um, movement would push the boundary, police would come back with a little more stress, and it went back and forth for some time. These images are from that period, and um, in last fall's issue of Contemporary Japan, the uh, DIJ Journal, I have an article which is about this 1967 incident called Juppachi, and this is the Tokyo uh, 1969 um, Tokyo University, and this is what was happening in Kanda while the um, university struggle was going on on campus. And um, then that article also talks about Ringo Sekigun, which is I'll refer to very briefly later on. Okay, so the mass protests became violent, and 68-69 was a critical turning point. The police cracked down very hard on violent protest, which previously had been allowed to a considerable degree, but when they couldn't really contain it anymore, then there was a whammy, and uh, literally thousands of students were arrested for protesting and um, having rocks in their pocket or <laughs> that sort of thing. And um, lots of arrests, not as many prosecutions, but still several thousand. And so to a certain extent, the resistance moved from the streets into the courts. And um, trial support groups were created to help people fight through these issues in the courts because a lot of, a lot of the arrests were th for issues which were not really settled in Japanese law at that time. And so um, they, they were happy to be protesting them. Okay, however, a small minority at the time became more committed. 
and leaders went underground or into exile, and others were pulled along with them. And a new, younger cohort that was fired up by the violence moved into underground and exile movements. Okay? Just at that point, at the peak in 1969, is when the Red Army faction appeared. It was originally um, just a radical faction inside the Kyosan Shugisha Dome, which uh, was nicknamed Bund, which was the, one of the main organizations. They had been the mainstream faction in the 60 Ampo and had been revived for 70 Ampo. And it was a very large public organization, but within it there was this increasingly radical uh, Red Army faction, which thought that they had to do more than, than they could do with street protest. So it started as a faction of a major protest group, which then gradually went underground. Now, we need to know a little bit about what its ideas were. The first three things up here were fairly common in the left milieu of the time. The first was that street public street protest had reached its limit, that they couldn't do any more with it because it was too violent and nobody was listening. Um, the second was, as a result, they thought that they needed a trained guerrilla army to resist the state, that they wanted to keep on going. And they really believed that a small guerrilla army could bring about revolution, even in Japan, which I think everybody realizes is not realistic. But at any rate, they were looking at lots of other places around the world where similar small groups had managed to mount revolutionary activity. So they had models that they believed, and they were reading those same Che Guevara and everybody, they were reading the same books, so they really thought, we can do this if we can just get it together. Okay, what was a little different about the Red Army faction was that their vision was that they were part of a worldwide revolution in progress. So they saw all of these separate actions happening around the world as connected into one big revolution, and they thought the, revol the Red Army could join forces with those groups. Um, some of their over-the-top statements suggest that they thought they could run them, but in any case, they, they could join forces with any revolutionary group anywhere in the world. They could fight with them, learn from them, and then return to Japan to bring home what they had learned. So that was their idea, and they were international in a way that other groups at the time were focused solely on staying inside of Japan. Okay, now... Uh, that led them, or nine of them, in spring of 1970 to hijack a plane to North Korea. Uh, this was the first hijacking in Japanese history. Um, they arrested the leader a few days before the hijacking, and in his notes it kept saying H.J. They had no idea what that was. <laughs> and even after the hijacking, it took a while for, oh, Naruhodo, hijack. So <laughs> anyway, it was too late by then, but they, they charged him with it anyway, even though he'd been in jail since before it happened. Um, at any rate, um, the, at that time, there were lots of Japanese domestic flights, but just the way that Japanese um, trains sometimes have names. So you have uh, um, hikari, that kind of thing for a, a train. This plane was called the Yodogo, okay? So the, um, the group that 
took the flight to North Korea, came to be known as the Yodo Go Group. Um, okay, now within two years, uh, Kim Il-sung's um, revolutionary, his workers' party had thoroughly brainwashed them all, and they had become converts, and um, during the 1970s and 80s, they were active as um, activists working for the um, for the North Korean state, so they lost their revolutionary, uh, their Red Army revolutionary ideas quite quickly. Um, but in any case, that was the first step, and the the remnants of the Yodogo group are still in North Korea. Um, there are only four of them still alive, and all of the ones still alive are in North Korea. Okay, now what happened with the Red Army faction? We've seen first that um, it came from Bund and became the Red Army faction. Okay, as it was doing stuff in Japan, people were getting arrested, so there were legal support groups that provided support when people were arrested, and those part of that fringe of people who were doing legal activities also got was involved in publishing things that they produced and later was also involved in publishing things which came out of the group in the Middle East. Okay? And then um, 1971, the Red Army faction was um, ran, running a bank robbing campaign, and they most of them got arrested as a result. Um, and what was left uh, ended up combining with an, uh, another group that had quite different ideas but was in a similar situation. Red Army had um, money from the robberies and the other group had guns from a gun shop robbery, so it was a marriage made in heaven. So they went off in the mountains and ended up um, in the spring of 72, the police caught up with them at, uh, in Karuizawa, of all places, and they had a 10-day siege at a mountain resort called Asama Sanso. You may have heard of that. After the siege ended, with nobody hurt and everybody arrested, um, it turned out that while they'd been in the mountains over the winter, they had had a horrible internal purge, and they had killed 14 of their own members, not just killed, tortured and killed. So it was devastating, and it was a real death blow to what was left of the radical new left. After that, um, people couldn't hold their heads up, and the, the whole um, the discourse had been damaged. Um, to, that's not my term. I just reviewed an article, and that was the language it used. Okay, anyway, um, before all that happened, in um, in Karuizawa, Shigenobu had gone to do the next international step, and she had figured out that she could go to the Middle East. And so that's what happened. Now that's the part of it that we're going to be talking about tonight. Okay, so I'm going to work through the three myths. In part, the story overlaps because it wasn't constructed out of three separate myths. They're piled on top of each other, um, but we'll try to keep track of it with these myths. Okay, so the first one was that the, red, the Nihon Sekigun, Japanese Red Army, carried out all of these international attacks starting in 1972. Okay, these are the international attacks that were attributed to the Japanese Red Army. Okay, so as you can see, they're working all over the place. And often an attack is in two different places because they're going here to leverage something over there. Um, 
Okay, now, this is a list of them. The first one is the Yodo Go, which is not the, the Nihon Senkigun at all. And the rest of them, I'm just putting up the list, but I'm going to be talking about them as we go. Okay, now, let's debunk myth number one. Who did those attacks? Well, it turns out there was no organized Japanese group in the Middle East until December 1974. There was no Nihon Sekigun. Okay, why does everybody think there was? Well, let me first say what did happen. The attacks in 1972 to 74 were planned by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which was the organization to which individual members had gone as volunteers. Okay? So there was no Japanese organization that was planning and carrying out these attacks. Individual members worked for the PFLP military wing, and they planned stuff and carried it out, and these guys did it, okay? So Nihon Sekigun, in English, JRA, formed at the end of 1974, and they did carry, plan and carry out the two attacks in 1975 and 1971, which, as we'll see, are somewhat distinctive, um, different from the previous ones. Okay, they may have assisted other groups after that, but they did not claim responsibility for anything after 1977. And if they participated after then, it was by helping some other entity, okay? Which is quite different from what the terrorism literature will tell you. Okay. So we had individual volunteers that went to Lebanon. And basically, at first, there were just two. Shigenobu Fusako and Okuda Tsuyoshi went to Beirut in 1971. Okay, Okudaira came from a different group. He was from Kansai, and he had been active in some small underground cells called the Kyoto Partisans that were, um, they organized in a cell structure, so they really, there was no central organization at all, just a bunch of little cells where people would occasionally go rob a, Koban or do something um, to cause a little trouble. Um, so they had met each other. She was going to go for Sekigun Ha. So um, Okudaira uh, sort of formally joined um, what was left of Sekigun Ha for a brief while, but he was actually from the Kyoto Partisans, and that was just um, to, so that the group that went would be connected to um, the Red Army. Um, okay, when they got there, he got he immediately hooked up with this um, section of PFLP called Outside Work. That's how they write it. That's how they talk about it in English. And outside work um, was basically, there was another whole army in PFLP, but outside work was where they were combining um, uh, local Palestinians with uh, people from other countries, including from the German Red Army faction, which, by the way, took its name from the Japanese Red Army faction. They thought it was a cool name, so they borrowed it. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, um, they were also involved um, coming down there at about the same time. So there were other people from lots of countries um, that, were, that were connected to PFLP's outside work section. 
Okay. Um, so that's, that's what Okadaira did. He got his guerrilla training from them. Shigenobu volunteered with a completely different, totally legal, above-board section of PFLP that was the public relations section. And they had a newspaper called Al-Hadaf, and she was, became a journalist working for that newspaper. Later, she was editing an English edition of Al-Hadaf. Um, but she was basically doing legal PR work explaining the Palestinian issue to a Japanese audience, okay? Um, so she publicized the cause by writing and editing, and she also, she knew Wakamatsu Koji, and um, she'd known him because he was a donor to the Red Army faction. Um, she worked in a bar and um, <laughs> got donations from her, um, her clients. Anyway, um, she persuaded him to um, come to Beirut, and Adachi Masao, who at that time was a young filmmaker um, in um, Wakamatsu Puro, um, he made a film. He was there just for uh, two, three weeks, I guess, but um, he made this, he, he shot the film, and then went back to um, Japan to edit it. And the film is sheer propaganda film. It's a really strange film, and it's recently be, been re-released so, and recolored, so you can see it um, in, f I guess, full color. The, one I, the old one I have is sort of gray and brown, and, um, very strange looking. But at any rate, it was called Sekigun PFLP Sekai Senso Sengen. And so it already had Sekigun and PFLP linked in the name, and they were going to announce the World Revolution. Okay, so the film, it, at that point, they had originally thought, well, we'll distribute this film commercially, but it, things were too hot in 1971. There was, they, there was no way they could do that. So instead, it toured college campuses, and the Sekigunha had a little old um, red bus, and people went around with the film to different college campuses and showed the film, and it was a recruiting tool. Okay, for people, wouldn't you like to go to the Middle East and uh, get guerrilla training? The film, if you see it, is full of pictures I mean, to a young radical kid in Japan in 1971. There would have been an attraction because it's got all these pictures of people casually handling weapons, taking guns apart and putting them back and, you know, firing range and everything. So all this stuff that was out of reach but um, attractive if you had this kind of militant mild mindset. So anyway, that was the film, and the idea was that people would be attracted to go get guerrilla training with PFLP, and a very few did. Okay, so here's my schematic of this early time period. Here's Shigenobu from Sekigunha. She's doing public relations up here, and she gets Adachi to make the film, and then, th and then but here's um, Okudaira, from the Kyoto Partisans, he's connected to outside work, and he immediately recruits three more guys from Kyoto Partisans to come there. Then stuff starts to fall apart. One of them, after getting trained, drowns. A second one goes back to Japan with the body and promises to recruit somebody. He recruits a guy named Maruoka, who came but said, oh, nobody told me about the red, the, um, the Lord Airport attack, I didn't sign in for that, so I'm here, I'll get trained, but I'm not going to do that. 
at least that's the public picture, and I'm not telling you the other story tonight. Anyway, <laughs> read the book. <laughs> anyway, so then they were still looking for people, so Shigeru knew Okamoto's older brother who was in North Korea. So he was, he, the, he ran the, he organized the film showing at Kumamoto Dai, where he was a student, and with the people who came to do the film, they suggested to him that if he went to the Middle East, they could arrange for him to see his brother. That never happened, but he did go. Okay, so here they are. Um, they've lost one person, two people already, but they've found two more, and that crew ends up doing the Lod Airport attack, which I'll tell you about in another page. Okay, and meanwhile, another young guy from Wakamatsu Pro then decided he'd like to go after seeing the, after he worked on the film, and so he went and volunteered. That's Wako. And then another guy named Yamada, not the Yamada who died at um, Lod, another one, um, came. And so this is sort of very small, and virtually everybody except Shigenobu is working for the military part. Okay, but she was kept out of that activity. Okay, so how did they live if they weren't um, their own organization between 1971 and 1974? After training in the PFLP camp, the men were housed together in PFLP apartments, and they were kept out of public sight because they were going to do these attacks, and they didn't want the Israelis or other people that they regarded as the enemy to know that they were there, that this Japanese had been trained. So they were keeping a very low profile, um, and they lived together, and then they trained and read books and stuff in their apartment and sat around being bored until it was time to go do something. They got, in addition to free housing, they got an allowance for food and sundries, and whenever they needed anything, they got expenses from PFLP. And they took orders and reported to the boss of outside work, who's, who's, who goes by the name of Abu Hani. He has a real name, too, but Abu Hani is how they talk about him. Okay, So clearly they were attached to this unit, which was feeding and housing them and giving them orders. Okay, Shigenobu, on the other hand, worked for the public relations section, which was perfectly legal. She lived separately in an apartment in Beirut. She was paid for writing and editing for PFLP publications. And she also wrote for other publications in Japan. Um, and after the Lod Airport attack, um, they were worried that she was a target and that there'd be retaliation because there were other people who were getting killed as a result of that attack. Um, so she was moved to Baghdad and was housed under PFLP protection for the next several years. Okay, so that's number one. There wasn't any group, okay? They were working for PFLP. Okay, and number two is Shigenobu Fusako, the female leader of the group, is the mastermind who planned and instigated all of these attacks. Uh, I don't know if you know this book by William Farrell. Um, he, he was an attaché in the American um, embassy, a military attaché in the embassy, and so he had access to all of the, the stuff that the police <laughs> were putting out about it, and that's what this book is about, okay? And he loves to make up nice, catchy terms, so um, Shigenobu is called the mistress of mayhem. <laughs> okay, anyway, he's an academic, but <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> okay, 
So, most common myth, second one. Okay. Well, she wasn't the leader until 1975 because there was no group until the end of 1974. So she was part of this little collection of people, but she wasn't a leader of anything. And subsequently, when she did take some kind of a leadership role within the organization that was formed, her style was very collaborative, okay? Um, and at times, other people were, were formally the leader for a while, and she was quite happy with that. So um, she was just trying to keep things together and keep people organized and focused. Okay. Um, she didn't plan any of the PFLP military actions. She was deliberately kept out of any military activity in that early period. And from what I know of what happened after 74, I think it was still the case that the military part was men's business. They lived separately and did their thing, and they met with the women who were there at, on occasion, and the women were living collectively and had small children by that point, but um, there's no indication that she was involved in planning even the, the 75 and 77 attacks, although she would have known more about them because they were by that time using Japanese-style um, planning and not PFLP-style. Um, she was very publicly visible until the Lode Airport attack. Um, Adachi says that he, he went there um, on his way back from the Cannes Film Festival, and he asked at the Japanese embassy if she was there. I think some of this story is a little um, smokescreen because I think he knew where to go before then. But uh, he, any, at any rate, he checked with the embassy, and they said, oh, Sekigun-chan. <laughs> so they knew her, and she was very publicly um, associated with, with um, Sekigun, um, but was regarded as uh, you know a kind of acceptable, harmless public figure. Okay, and during the, all during the 70s and the 80s, she wrote many books about her actual activities, okay? She wrote books about being in, um, in there, about when she first went. She wrote a book about how all of them had to leave when the Israelis invaded in 1982 and how she went out with them. And she, she wrote a whole bunch of books, which were published in Japan, widely available, and I'm sure the police and everybody read them, but they somehow thought that she's doing all that and editing the newspaper, but she's also doing all this stuff underground and running attacks. And what you saw was what was really happening, okay? Um, okay, so the load airport attack. PFLP planned this attack, and we now know that they planned it well before the Japanese got there. PFLP had planned it, and they were looking for somebody who was willing to do it. And they tried it on some other people who said, no, thank you. And then the Japanese said, mm, okay, we'll do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there, there are reasons why they, at that particular point, two months after the Rengo Sekigun were um, interested in showing people this is how you really do revolution, not in Asama Sanso. Um, so the Japanese were participating. The idea was they would be unknown volunteers for PFLP. They had, when they arrived, they ripped their pictures out of their passports, and they were not, they were supposed to be nameless volunteers, and 
not having any particular country. However, the attack did not go as planned, and as you probably know, it had very disastrous results. Um, there are different stories about what was supposed to happen, but what did happen was cl quite clearly not what was supposed to happen. Um, what, we, what we know for sure is that the Japanese team was supposed to go, they had weapons in their baggage. They had um, three hand grenades apiece, and they had a Kalashnikov rifle in their baggage. And there was no airport security at that point, okay? So they came, they checked the baggage, and then when they went to the, the carousel in the baggage claim room, they opened the thing and um, took out their weapons, and they were aiming at armed... Or, Israeli security that are armed and in uniform, okay? So they start firing, and of course, there were lots more than they had expected, and those people immediately start firing back, and they don't know who's shooting and who's not. They can't distinguish, so there's a lot of people that got caught in the crossfire. That is their view of it. The Israeli government never allowed anybody from the outside in. They wouldn't let the UN in or anybody else, so the only information that came out of the attack was what the Israeli government put out and their view was these three people killed and injured all of those people with their three guns and nine um, hand grenades, okay? Uh, in the process, uh, two of the hijackers, two of the attackers were also killed. It, it was a very devastating event, shocking all over the world. 26 people died, most of them um, Puerto Rican pilgrims. 76 people were injured, and the one attacker, um, Okamoto Kozo, survived. Okay? So to most of the world, this was a devastating, horrible thing that had happened. Um, but in the Middle East, it was celebrated because somebody had penetrated all the way into an Israeli airport and shot it up. So Okamoto became a hero. There were songs written about him. Okay, so two different worldviews. And of course, these people were living in the Middle East. So what they got was the, is the Arab view of it and not the Japanese view or the rest of the world's view. Okay, so anyway, that's what the attack was. That's what it looked like. I was there. At the end of his trial, I went and I interviewed Okamoto, and I went through that airport at that time. There were still bullet holes all over the place. I mean, there weren't any more blood, but there was bullet holes all over. And the room had a, there was a carousel in the middle, and on the left side there was, it was a very high ceiling room, and there was a balcony along the left side which was full of soldiers with weapons, <laughs> okay? And of course, there were still lots of them afterwards because everything was very tight at that point. But I could sort of see how they went into a situation which they didn't quite understand, and it, very likely there was lots of crossfire. Okay, after the Lode Airport attack, PFLP immediately took public responsibility for the Lode Airport attack. They said, we did it. Um, then they, they had arrested Okamoto, and after a few days, he started semi-talking. And in the process, he said he belonged to something called the Red Star Army. Well, there isn't anything called the Red Star Army. The 
his brother was in Sekigunha, and Sekigun at that time had put out a little newspaper called Akai Hoshi. So somehow Red Star, and you know, so anyway, that's what he said. And I have at least one of his confession statements, and it's, it's very jumbled. There's some things that seem to be true, but it's like many confession statements, it's all um, mixed up. Okay, so after that happened, and it was clear that Japanese had done it, PFLP came to Shigenobu and said, you have to go make a public announcement about who these Japanese were and how they, why they did it. Okay, so she's grieving. For, she's just lost two friends, one of them her paper husband, and is just devastated by the whole thing and what happened. Um, but she got up and she made her public statement, and she said... Arab Sekigun did it, okay? Well, what's Arab Sekigun? By that time, she had broken with Sekigun in Japan over the, red, the, the Rengo Sekigun incident. And so it wasn't the Japanese in Japan, Sekigunha, that did it. So to distinguish it, she said Arab Sekigun, meaning the people who are in the Middle East that are connected to Sekigun. Or she, she was the only one that was connected, but she was still doing it in the name of something Sekigun. Okay. However, what happened is, this was front page news all over the world at the time, and the English newspapers reported it as Japanese Red Army. Okay? J-R-A. Okay? So, that to my mind, is part of how the name got attached to them as Japanese Red Army. And if you were reading this stuff in anything other than Japanese, of course it's going to say Japanese, because that's who did it, but that becomes part of the name of a, an organization that did not exist. Okay, so what did these volunteers do, the ones that were left and the new ones that came? What did they do in 1973 and 74? Well, the men joined in some other attacks. Um, there was a Dubai hijacking, which also was semi-botched. It was a bunch of, it was a, a Palestinian team and Maruoka was in it. And on the plane, the woman who was supposed to be leading the attack ended up blowing herself up with a hand grenade in the plane. <laughs> and so the other people, well, what are we supposed to do now? <laughs> okay, so they went through and then there were other screw-ups on that one, and they, the plane sat for three days waiting for instructions that didn't come. And so, anyway, that was a disaster, and Maduroko was in that one. Um, and eventually they, they went to Libya and burned up the plane, and then he was held in Libya for another year and a half. Okay, um, the next one was in Singapore Harbor. That was an attack with two um, Japanese and two PFLP, and... What they were trying to do was blow up a shell oil refinery in the harbor, or on the edge of the harbor, that was supplying gas for the um, Vietnam War. So that was the point, was it, we're going to blow up this thing. Well, of course, they couldn't blow it up. And um, they did a little damage, and then they got chased they, to the um, water. They commandeered a ferry boat, and then they sat for several days in the middle of Singapore Harbor, surrounded by gunboats, <laughs> and nobody was moving. And finally, to settle it, um, they, the 
Singapore government people agreed that they would provide them enough escort that they could get safely back to where they were going. But then the question was, who's going to give them a plane? And the Singaporeans wouldn't do it. So finally, PFLP sent another bunch of people to Kuwait. (laughs) And they invaded the Japanese embassy in Kuwait and got the Japanese government to provide a plane to take these people to Kuwait, and then it was all over, okay? So, okay, disasters, Bill. Anyway, not surprisingly, the Japanese were increasingly unhappy with this PFLP style, okay? What was happening was (laughs) Abu Hani would cook up these things by himself. He's an educator, he's a doctor. He's, you know, he, he'd cook up these things and figure out how he wanted it to go. And then he would bring in one person and say, okay, you're going to do this, and I'm going to train you to do this. And then he'd bring somebody else. So he'd have the attack team would be barely knowing each other, and they would have been trained to do just what they were trained to do and not anything else. And so none of them knew what was going on, and if any one thing went wrong, they didn't know what to do, (laughs) okay? So not surprisingly, these attacks were botched by poor poor planning and lack of coordination, and it was a general disaster, and the Japanese by that time are saying, hey, my life is on the line with these stupid, um, badly planned attacks, which, as I'm sure you all know, are just... 180 degrees different from Japanese planning, okay? <laughs> so they were used to a group does it, and they every, you know, they work out every little detail, and they go around, and they memorize it and everything so that everybody knows exactly what's going to happen, and if somebody, if something happens, somebody else can step in and do it. So they needed a way out of this situation. So they wanted their own organization, and They had already linked up with a lot of other Japanese, young Japanese, in Europe, and PFLP had a whole operation going in Europe, so they had people there. Um, And what they wanted to do was create a Japanese group that would be for the Middle East and Europe together to do stuff, and that would give them enough people to do things. Um, However, the planning took a lot of time. They needed to separate from PFLP, but they still needed PFLP for a lot of logistics and stuff. So they didn't want to just go away and make them mad, so they needed to very delicately um, work through how they could get separated but still be friends with them and um, cooperate. And since they were all on the PFLP payroll, they needed an independent source of income. Um, so in, in 1974, when they were planning this, they began planning something they called Honyaku Sakusen. And that was, um, the plan was to kidnap a Japanese executive in Europe for ransom. That would give them their money. And in fact, during that same time period, um, both the German group and an Italian group did similar kinds of, of kidnapping for ransom of executives. So this was a common tactic at the time. Um, however, their planning for the Honyaku Saksen was thwarted by an unexpected arrest in Paris. Okay. Um, Yamada, who was one of the P- 
people on the, in the um, outside work, was sent to Paris to do some errands in Europe, and he carried with him some messages from Shigenobu and some other people that were related to this Honyaku Sakusen. They were in code, but it was apparently easy to break them. Um, and so he was arrested at Orly Airport, and he had this stuff on him. So they're holding him at Orly. It was a while before people even knew what had happened. But um, needless to say, the Honyakusakusen ended right there. It was never carried out. But all of the people who were the associates who were supposed to receive these messages were tracked down in France. And... Um, Ah, questioned. Some of them were deported back to Japan. Um, others they couldn't find. Uh, one of them, Yamamoto Mariko, was put on the wanted list and she went straight to the Middle East. And uh, there were some other people who found out in time and who ran off to the Middle East before, um, before they were caught by the, the police in France. Okay, so Honyaku Sakusen is gone, but all of a sudden, there's these people streaming into Lebanon from, that are refugees from this attack that didn't happen. Okay. Um, then, in September, apparently PFLP was working through diplomatic channels to try and free Yamada, but they weren't getting anywhere. So, at that point, um, Wako um, got concerned and said, are you doing enough? Um, why don't we run an operation? So, PFLP said, fine. You can go talk to your boss, who is a guy named Michel in Lebanon, and he will contact the person who runs the outfit in Europe, who is Carlos the Jackal, and Carlos will plan this for you, okay? So they, so Waco and a couple of other people went off to Europe and hung out for a couple of weeks, and Carlos contacted them and told them what the plan was, and told, they discussed how many weapons they needed and everything, and they got more or less what they wanted. But it was on a fairly short time period, and um, they, were, they had like one day's notice, okay, tomorrow you're going into The Hague, um, into this building to um, invade this embassy. And it was, of course, the French embassy in The Hague because it was the French who had Yamada. Okay, so that was that attack. Um, they did it. Uh, it was planned by PFLP, carried out by Japanese. And again, the planning went awry, and they were supposed to get further instructions from Carlos that never came. And they ended up using some guy in the Japanese embassy as a translator <laughs> to negotiate for them. Um, but eventually, they succeeded. And they got Yamada, and somebody created an airplane to take them off, all off to the Middle East. Okay? Now, after that, um, Tohira and Nishikawa, who were two of the guys in, in the group, in the semi group in the Middle East, were put on the wanted list as participants. Wako's name hadn't come up yet. Okay? Um, and two other people who were in Europe. Yoshimura Kazue, who's a woman who was a translator, was living in Europe, and Adachi Masao, the filmmaker, who was also living in Paris at that time, they were put on the wanted list in suspicion of being involved in the Hague incident. So all of those people went as quickly as they could to the Middle East, um, but they were by now wanted, and they could no longer use their legal passports because now they're on the wanted list. Okay? Okay. So... 
they're all all these people are gathering in the Middle East, and they start they're finally organizing their their little group, and it. Because they're already being called a JRA, they call themselves Nihon Sekigun. Okay, we have a name already. Um, okay, so then in 1975, Tohira and Nishikawa are sent off to Sweden to do some um, preliminary casing for something else, which never happened. They got arrested in Sweden and deported back to Japan. So then, of course, they are interrogated. Um, and as a result of that interrogation... Uh, Shigenobu and Wako are put on the wanted list for involvement in the Hague incident. Okay? Now, um, now we get to myth number three, okay? Um, which is all the people on the Japanese Red Army Interpol wanted list committed criminal acts of terrorism as members of the group. Okay? This is a very late, this is a current version of the wanted list, which I just discovered online. Um, and um, this is fairly irrelevant. Some of them are the people that we'll see in a minute, but um, I just put it there so I'd have a picture on that page. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, this is the poster that I have, which comes from the late 1980s. And this one was, if you went to Japan in the late 1980s, every immigration officer's cubicle at Narita Airport had this poster and a green one with the Yodogo people on it. The train stations were full of them. They were everywhere, okay? Everybody knew what these people looked like. Unfortunately, they were using 1971 pictures, <laughs> and now it was 1989, okay? Actually, in the 1980s, in Italy, um, Shigenobu was tried in absentia because somebody recognized her based on this picture. Okay, she didn't look like that by the late 1980s, but that's what they had. Did you see this woman? Long hair, um, Japanese? Yeah, yeah, I saw her. Okay. Um, but anyway, so this is the poster. Okay, now what I want to show you is all these people with a green star are people who were put on the list because of the Hague incident, okay? Um, and the rest of them we'll see in a minute. Okay, the reason, this is late enough that Maruoka and Sensui had already been arrested, so their pictures aren't here. And I have discovered that there are a couple of other people who should be on the wanted list, but for some reason they weren't there. Maybe they didn't have a picture or something, but in any way, there are, there are a few more people who were around. Not very many. Okay, now let's take a second to talk about the kinds of guerrilla attacks that were happening. Um, Donatella della Porta, uh, who studied the German and Italian cases, uh, parallel cases, um, coined this wonderful word, free the guerrilla, guerrilla attacks. I love it, okay? Because the attacks that they were doing were actually, they somebody gets arrested and then they have to plan an attack to get that person back, okay? So it's all just um, revolving door stuff by this point. They're not doing anything new in the outside world. They're just trying to keep their guys from, you know, getting them back when they get arrested. Okay, so these are actions. PFLP during its time did have free the guerrilla guerrilla attacks and they were actions to free members who were trapped in an initial action or because of an arrest. Okay, so the Singapore Harbor shell oil attack 
was the original attack and they were stuck in the harbor. So the Kuwait embassy hostage taking was the free the guerrilla guerrilla attack for that. Okay. And it freed the Singapore team that was sitting in the harbor. Okay. Then when Yamada was arrested in Paris, PFLP organized this embassy invasion in The Hague to free Yamada and then take the team in The Hague back to the Middle East. Okay, so that's their style. Somebody got caught, you organize an attack, and you get them. Okay? Um, that was pretty common. After Nihon Sekigun was an organization, in the two attacks that they did, they had a different style. They took it to the next level. First of all, um, we saw that Tohira and Nishikawa were arrested in Sweden and deported to Japan. Well, as soon as that became clear, Nihon Sekigun organized its first attack that they did on their own, and their attack was to, which Wako led, he was by then their embassy invasion specialist. Um, it was the Kuala Lumpur, uh, it was a, it's a building that houses the American, Japanese, and Swedish consulates in Kuala Lumpur. Okay, and Sweden because that's who had it, and Japanese because wasn't it nice that they were there too. Okay, so um, they had a hostage-taking incident in the Kuala Lumpur consulate, and they freed the attack team, these two guys that were in Japan, but they also had a list of about half a dozen other people that they wanted to get out of custody in Japan. And those people were asked if they wanted to go, and three of them went with them. Okay, they had nothing to do with this attack. They were people who were already imprisoned in Japan for other things. Okay, and in fact, two of them were from Sekigunha, but the third one wasn't. The third one was from a completely different group called Higashi Asia um, Buso uh, Hanichi Higashi Asia Buso which was anti-Japanese armed front. Okay, and they were a bomb making group that had been very underground, and then they'd all gotten arrested in a short period of time, and they were all there and starting to be on trial. And so one guy from that group was brought out, okay? Then two years later, a guy named Hidaka and Okudaira Junzo, who's the younger brother of the Okuna o Okudaira who died at um, Lod Airport, got arrested in Jordan. Hidaka was killed in Jordanian custody, and at that point, the Jordanians said, Okudaira, we're deporting you back to Japan. You can, by the way, you can take this body with you. So he went back to Japan, and he was, of course, immediately arrested. Okay, so that's their second problem. I, Okudaira's been arrested, so what are we going to do? Okay, so the answer to that was the Dhaka hijacking. And this was an airplane hijacking, and um, they got the... They, got on the plane someplace else, but they forced it to land in Dhaka, Bangladesh, which at the time was, there was a whole lot of political unrest there, so there wasn't any real government that could coordinate with them, so it was a very nice place that they chose for hijacking. Um, <coughs> okay, and for this one, of course, they freed the attack team and Okudaira, and then he had another list, and four people, four more people came with them. Two more people, two women from um, Higashi Asia Sosensen, and two men who were common criminals, 
actually they took five, okay, um, common criminals who had been active in prison. And so they thought they know skills that would be interesting for us to learn, okay? And then, then one more guy from um, uh, a Sekigunha bank robber um, was brought over. Okay, so the difference is that in the, the ones that they ran, in addition to getting the person that they were trying to get out and bring back to their own group, they brought in other people that were offered the opportunity to go to the Middle East and join them, okay? Um, and there were people who said no thanks, but there were other people who said yes, they would go, and so they, this expanded their group. And by this time, they had a vision that their group was really, it was going to be beyond sect, and it was going to be unifying all of the Japanese left from this little group of people, okay? But so they were happy to have people with different backgrounds. Okay, um, so let's debunk myth number three. Who's on these posters? Some people were put on the wanted list, as we saw, for suspected involvement in the Hague incident. And all of the people who were released from Japanese custody in those two incidents were immediately put on the wanted list. The Japanese government had um, used extraordinary measures to release them. And at least in the first one, they said, okay, well, they were, uh, they were legally released. But then they decided, oh, the minute they stepped off Japanese soil, then they were fugitives. So they put them all on the on the list. And the first set they gave passports to. The second bunch, they didn't even bother to go. You're already on the list. Okay? So, anyway, so all these, so most of the people on the wanted list are people who were released by Nihon Sekigun from prison in Japan. Okay? And the, but we also had all these people that got in after the Hague thing. And so the actual status of what it meant to be on the wanted list only becomes clear after people get rearrested and brought back to Japan and you find out what they can charge them with, okay? For some people, they just, okay, you're back, your trial starts up again. But for other people, it was unclear why they were on the list or what, what they had done. And it's very few of the people who went to the Middle East with Nihon Sekigun are actually documented as having done any of these incidents. Okay, so most of them were just there. Okay, now, okay, so here's our, let's keep score now. Um, the first group, the, the green ones, are the people who got on the list for The Hague. Okay, there's a little overlap because Nishikawa then gets arrested and Tohira gets arrested. So they're also back and so then they get released back. And later Okudaira gets arrested and he's released back. Okay, so the red ones are all the people who got back to them or who got to them because of they were released by one of these incidents. Okay, now after that, there's by this time this is um, high anti terrorism period, and Japan is finally trying to recover its status by getting tough on these people and not. Um, given away the store anymore, and so they're they're cooperating with getting them um, found and deported back to Japan. So there's a lot of arrests and deportations. Okay, I'm not going to go through this list in detail, but between in the 80s and the 90s, there were a whole bunch of them caught all over the place. 
Um, the blue ones are people that were found um, that had belonged to the Yodogo group in North Korea, and they got um, brought back to Japan and tried. Um, the, the green ones were people tried in the U.S. were associated with um, the group Kikumura. They don't think he belonged, but his father does. And when I knew him, his father, oh, my son, is he's with Nihon Sekigun. And the son and everybody else is saying, no. But in any case, he was arrested a couple times, and he was tried in the U.S. and served his time. Okay, the other U.S. guy um, is still there. He sends me Christmas cards and Mother's Day cards. Um, <laughs> okay? Um, then, and all the white ones are the people that were uh, brought back to Japan, and they were tried in Japan. So they were all arrested, and they were all tried for something. Okay, now let's see what happened. Okay, then in 1997, um, the Japanese had found in Lebanon, they tracked down five people, and they told the Lebanese, hey, these are, these are ours. Arrest these people and then deport them to us. So the D Lebanese police dutifully arrested them, and at the time they arrested them, they had misidentified one of them. And, oh, okay. So then the Lebanese discovered that one of them was Okamoto Kozo. So they said, uh, we're not turning these people over to you right away. We're going to try them in Lebanon. And after they've served their sentences in Lebanon, then we'll talk about whether we're deporting them to Japan. Okay, So they tried them on passport charges, because they were all on funny passports. Um, and then, so they served, like, it was two years. It was a trial, group trial, and then a couple of years. And then by midnight, mid-2000, it was time to, their sentences were up. And they were all hoping that they would then get political asylum in Beirut, in Lebanon, but it didn't happen. The, ja the Lebanese government um, did give um, political asylum to Okamoto. And then in the middle of the night, they bundled up the other four and stuck them on a plane to Jordan, from which they then took an Aeroflot The story's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> and I heard it from her. Um, they're, they're, in the middle of the night, they've gone to Jordan, okay? And the Jordanians um, were trying to put them on an, uh, an Austra a Qantas plane. And when the Qantas pilot found out who they were, they, he said, no way, this is illegal, I'm not doing this, okay? So then they finally talked the Russians into doing it. And so an Aeroflot plane took them back. Um, this is what in the United States these days we call a rendition. And that's what happened to them, okay? And then the minute they hit Japanese soil, they were arrested again. Okay, so the four of them. Okay. So now we've got all these people back. Now, the question we left hanging before was, what about these people who were on there for Hague? What, what did they do? Okay. Well, there were three cases of people who came back um, who didn't do anything. Okay. Yoshimura Kazue was on the wanted list for Hague. Uh, they later found her in Peru and had no evidence, so they charged her with passport violations after she'd been on the wanted list. Okay, she's on the wanted list with a legal passport, but she can't use it anymore, so now she has an illegal passport, and they got her for that, okay? <laughs> uh, same thing happens to Adachi Masao. He had gone back to the Middle East and belonged to the group after they had um, put him on the wanted list. He was living in Paris as a filmmaker, okay? And same thing, they charged him with passport violations after he'd been on the wanted list. Okay, 
and Yamamoto Mariko, she got on the list because she was one of the people that letters were being sent to, and so they suspected she was clearly tied up with them. Um, and she had two passport charges. One was her own passport, and the other was that she was charged with having obtained a false passport for Okudaira Jinzo to get him out of Japan at some earlier point. But she still got a 30-month suspended sentence and was released. Okay, so all of these people were walking around within a couple years um, after they had been deported back to Japan as these big Red Army criminals. Okay, now, uh, then they hit the jackpot. In November 2000, um, they found Shigenobu in Osaka and arrested her. Okay, this is the picture after you know they arrested her and they were taking her up to Tokyo. She's got the there's. The Japanese police have these little niceties, and one of them is they don't want you to see that the person has handcuffs on, so they've covered the handcuffs with cloth, okay? Um, but she's there with th thumbs up, and she was very genki while she was uh, arrested. And, but you can see she looks nothing like she did in her 1971 picture. Okay. Um, what to do with her? Okay, this is clearly the big fish. This is the person who has been constructed as the leader who made all this happen, okay? Well, passport violations, for sure, okay? And then, because of the Hague charges, they charged her with attempted murder, which is a 20-year charge. Okay, now how could they charge her with attempted murder? Okay, as you know, there aren't that many guns floating around in Japan, it's unusual for a Japanese crime to be committed with a gun. So there's a kind of standard agreement among prosecutors and judges in Japan that if a gun was used in the commission of a crime, you can charge the person with attempted murder. Because clearly they took a gun, they must have wanted to kill somebody. Okay. Now, to an American, this is absolutely <laughs> laughable. But in any case, that's the, that's the rule. Okay, so they could, with a straight face, charge her with attempted murder. Um, okay, so then she, she this was her own trial, and she was also added to Wako's trial. Wako was on trial for Hague and also for the 1975 Kuala Lumpur incident. So he was going away for a long time, regardless. I mean, there was no question about that. Okay. In her first public appearance um, to, before the judge to get sent back for more time, she announced that Nihon Sekigun was disbanding. Okay? And she explained it as saying that they had wanted for a long time, the name Nihon Sekigun was so associated with this violent terror stuff. They had stopped doing that by the late 1970s, but they were stuck with this name, and they wanted to do legal stuff, but they couldn't do it because they were Nihon Sekigun. Okay? So she was disbanding it so that they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't be Nihon Sekigun anymore. Okay? So she did that. And that caused a certain uproar among the um, followers in Japan, many of whom were crushed that it was over, but at the same time, it opened things up for the people who were on trial or who were in prison because they had been, after these first guys talked in 1975, and they had to yank them out really fast, um, they had, after that, people had been really disciplined, and people would 
get arrested. They'd, they'd go through their whole trial in Japan. They wouldn't say a word. So if the police had, if, if the, there was enough evidence, they'd get convicted, but they would, wouldn't have said a word. I used to go to Nishikawa's trial, and he would sit there with his eyes closed the whole time. He didn't know if he was awake or asleep, um, but he never said a word in his whole trial, and of course he didn't take the stand. Um, Maruoka um, also wouldn't talk and denied that he had done any of the things that everybody in the world knew he had done, but he just said, nope, didn't do those, not guilty. Um, but he was kind of funny, so he had funny ways of, of handling it, but he was clearly not going to say anything about the organization. Um, okay, as soon as it was disbanded, Wako told Maruoka, I'm going to tell what really happened. And Maruoka said, fine, go for it. Now it's okay, okay? And the first thing he did when, he, when his trial started was they said, are you Maruoka, or excuse me, Wako Haruo, a member of the Japanese Red Army? And he said, no. And they said, and he said, I was a member, but I left it <laughs> in the late 1970s. So after that, they had to keep saying, are you a former member of the Japanese Red Army? So, okay, but so he then was very open, and he's a kind of lone wolf, and he had his own perspective, but it's a very valuable perspective. He was, he was the first one that was really open about it. Okay, but so then in, um, in his trial, then they, they arrest Shigenobu, and they add her to his trial as a co-conspirator, okay, co-defendant. And he's livid. She didn't have anything to do with the Hague incident. I did that, you know, and he's telling the court, you know, I did it, I, you know, here's how it was planned. I took responsibility, I was sent to Europe, Kahlo's planned it, and I carried it out, <laughs> okay? She wasn't even there, she doesn't know anything about it, okay? So he's saying this very openly, and then he testifies also in her trial and says basically the same thing. Um, and we have some more. In her trial, first thing was Tohira. The piece of evidence they had connecting her to Hague was this guy's statement when he was arrested in 1975. Well, I don't know how much you know about Japanese interrogations, but there's a lot of um, coercion and uh, false confessions, okay? And the subject does not write the statement. The interrogators, at the end of a day, write up what they want out of it, and then they try to get the person to sign it, okay? At some point, they got Tohira to sign something, okay? And that slightly implicated Shigenobu, and that was the basis for putting her on the wanted list. Okay, and for saying she was connected. Okay, so he is required to testify for the prosecution because they have this statement. So he comes in and he's just really, I don't want to be here. I don't want to testify for the prosecution, but they forced him. And he first says, well, obviously they coerced this statement. Um, it isn't what I really thought. They, they dragged this out of me. And then he says, and the prosecutors doctored what I said about her. Well, Prisoners often say that, and there isn't any evidence of it. But in this case, happily, the prosecution made a mistake, and they submitted in evidence two different versions of the same <laughs> deposition in which the difference was that they had changed a couple characters so that it looked more serious, like 
what they said about her was was worse after they had doctored it. Okay, so that was sort of getting blown out of the water. But um, nevertheless, they went on. Waco testifies that he did it. He describes the whole thing. She wasn't even on the same continent. Maruoka testifies at length, supports Waco's description, and analyzes what everybody's doing and the whole thing. Um, and after all of that, the judge in the first trial says, um, yes, she's guilty of um, cooperation in the Hague incident. And he writes, in, it's in the Hanketsu, I don't know when or where or how, but she must have been involved. <laughs> okay? So it went through two appeals. Um, in the second one, they tried to get information about Carlos. They sent the lawyer to France to talk to Carlos, who said, who's in jail in France now, and he said, um, yeah, she had nothing to do with it. He said, you know, the Japanese police came here before, and I told them the same thing. <laughs> But under the rules at that point, the police don't have to tell you what they have, okay? So they knew that she wasn't involved, but they prosecuted her anyway. Okay, anyway, so that's where we are. Um, and she got her 20-year sentence. A lot of books have come out with these, this new information out of those trials. And um, two of them are in uh, Ikoshu because people have died, but they packaged the stuff that they had. At any rate, this is material. Okay, now, where are we? What do we know? The state and the media created these myths. The state constructed an image of the Japanese Red Army that imagines a centralized hierarchical organization like the old New Left Sex, because that's how they thought it must be organized. And therefore, if she's the leader of it, she's giving orders to all these men. Um, and they, of course, put them on the international wanted list as terrorists. Um, the media are reinforcing, reinforcing the state's image of the group. Their information is coming largely from police briefings because they don't have that much more access to them uh, overseas. And that is supporting the state's image as fighting terrorism. And oh, through this, media and other writers writing about it create this image of daring terrorists who can strike indiscriminately anywhere in the world at will, who can elude capture for 20, 30 years, and hold the world at bay, and make the state meet their demands and lose face. Okay, so this image out of this little handful of people who were stumbling around, um, they did do things, but not not the way the myth was constructed about them. Okay, but they also constructed their own image based on the myth. So the 1971 film was public relations, but it's clearly a, a aggressive pro propaganda film. Um, the 1972 Lod Airport, they had to take responsibility for, even after PFLP had already done so. And as they became their own organization, they became their own public image. So Shigenobu then steps forward as the public image of what the leadership of this organization is, and the organization itself commemorates the Lod Airport attack as their identity. So they claimed it. We're the people who did that. 
Okay, so they're as much responsible as anybody else for the kind of image that they ended up with. Um, this is the kind of thing that was available in the early days, published in Japan by supporters. These four books were all produced by Shigenobu there, during those years. That's what she was doing. I mean, if you wanted to know what she was doing, she was writing these books and editing. Um, and this is what Nihon Sekigun put out at 20 years after celebrating that they are the people who did the Lod Airport attack and all of these other things. Okay, so they're as responsible as the other people are. But what perpetuates it now? Well, there is an unending supply of mass media and popular culture coverage of this stuff. There are still international media reports that come out. There are media retrospectives um, in Japan all the time where they take all these clips and run them together and you get this picture that yes, 20 years of senseless violence, no explanation of what any of it was about, but it's there. That this is what the new left was. Um, there, this group is depicted in films, in novels, all over in popular culture. And two days ago on the internet, I discovered 83,000 entries. Fortunately, they tell you the number. I, <laughs> I didn't have to count them. But a lot of it's scrambled. You know that you get all kinds of garbage in the internet. And it'll say Nihon Sekigun or Japanese Red Army, whatever. But if you start reading them, half of it is about something else. Okay. But also, specialists who've been writing about them, presumably know things, including me, have been working from limited information. And so both terrorism specialists who have made a whole industry out of it and the few academics who work on it um, have not known all of the stuff because it was coming out in bits and pieces until the 2000s. And the final thing that I think is important, which I raised earlier, is language slippage. And part of that is just when you translate it into English, it is the Japanese Red Army, whether it exists or not. But the other thing is that it's very easy when you're talking about things. I, in preparing for this talk, realized that I was stealing stuff from older things in which I was, I was labeling stuff in ways that I wouldn't label it. Okay, so we're all complicit, but I hope when I finish writing this book, you'll get not the true perfect story, because I will never know that, and probably nobody will, but at least a better one which will debunk some of these myths. Thank you. <laughs>